This morning, as we turn our attention to the scriptures, we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 1. So I invite you to turn there with me this morning, right after all of the Gospels. We'll begin right at the beginning of Acts in chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 14. Before we read God's word together and learn about it together, let's invite the Spirit to come and illuminate for us. Let's pray. Almighty God, we pray that you would grant, as your only Son, Lord Jesus, ascended into the heavens, so that we may also set our minds on things above where Christ is. We know he lives and reigns with you and with the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. And so we pray you would send your Spirit to unite us to him. Help us to see in these words your word and direct our paths for Jesus' sake. Amen. Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering... He presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our passage today is the beginning of a new book, and it begins with an introduction. It's the beginning of of a new chapter, really, in the story of God and God's people. The writer is Luke, the same one who wrote the gospel. 
And he begins this new book the same way he began the first one, addressing it to Theophilus, which means friend or lover of God. We don't know who Theophilus was, perhaps a Greek patron who asked Luke to write these accounts. But what we do know is that Luke explains to Theophilus that in the first book, in volume one, we could say, he wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. But there's more to tell. This second volume, this book, the Acts of the Apostles, is the rest of the story. He has already told about everything Jesus did while he was still on earth, but now we need to learn about what happens next. After our Easter celebration last week, it might seem kind of like a strange idea. How can the story of Jesus' life be only a beginning? Isn't the whole of our faith summarized by this idea that Jesus died for our sakes and then rose again from the dead by the power of God? It's the best thing that ever happened, as Jed just said. So what does Luke mean when he says he has already told all that Jesus began to do and to teach? That's what it says there in the text, all that Jesus began to do and to teach. What more is left to be done? Now what? Well, Luke goes on to explain that after Jesus rose from the dead, he spent 40 days with his followers, appearing to them, proving that he was alive. He ate with them. He let Thomas touch his wounds. But then he also began to teach them. For 40 days, he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. That's a pretty vague description for 40 days worth of content. In fact, even if we look back at all the other Gospels, their accounts of what happens in those days after the resurrection are very short. They don't tell us very much about what he said. We get just snippets of his teaching. But Luke tells us he spent 40 days meeting with his followers. And perhaps that description, that number, 40 days, is the biggest clue we have about what the purpose and content of these conversations really was. Throughout scripture and in the Jewish writing of the times, 40 days is symbolic. Symbolic of a period of preparation. Think about the story of Moses. He spent 40 days on Mount Sinai receiving all the instructions for how to build the tabernacle so that the people of God could worship. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness preparing to begin his ministry. I don't know if Luke intends for us to think of those stories when he mentions 40 days, but it seems that's what he's doing here. He's preparing his followers for what's about to happen next. I wish we had more of his teaching recorded from those 40 days. But look with me for just a minute at what we do have. Besides what we have in Acts, we have some examples in Mark and Matthew where some additional teaching about Jesus is recorded. If you want to turn with me, you can look at Mark 16 and Matthew 28. But I'll read just a short snippet for you. So last week we heard the words from Mark 16. Jesus said to the disciples, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. And he goes on to list many of the signs that the believers could do to demonstrate the kingdom of God. 
Talked about that last week. Matthew 28 has a really famous verse there um, that happens during Jesus' appearance to his disciples, beginning in verse 18. These will be familiar words to you. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Those are really, besides what's in Acts, the only two things we have from these 40 days of teaching about the kingdom of God. But looking just at those two and what we have in Acts, the message seems pretty clear. Go preach the gospel to all creation, Jesus says in Mark. Go make disciples of all nations, he says in Matthew. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, he says in Acts. Jesus spent 40 days after his resurrection speaking about the kingdom of God, and this is what he said. Go be my witnesses. Go tell people that you have seen the kingdom of God breaking into this world, that death reigns no longer, that Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen, and now... It's time for the whole world to know it. The disciples hear this message loud and clear. This is what he's been saying to them for 40 days. And they start to get excited. So they ask him, Lord, is now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They understand the work that Jesus has begun to do. They get what his teaching is all about. They have seen the power of God and the resurrection, and they can see where this is all headed. Christ is going to restore the whole world under the reign of God. So they say, is now the time? Are we ready? Can we do it now? Jesus, will you do it now? Commentators disagree about how much the disciples really get it here. Are they missing the mark like they often do in the Gospels? Or do they see where this is really all headed? Maybe they're missing the point a little bit when they think it's just still only about Israel. They're not hearing that part about the whole world. But I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. I think they see the end goal of where this is all headed. Jesus' death and resurrection is a complete act in itself, but its effect is for the whole world. It means restoration of the whole world under the reign of God. And they see that, but they're missing a key step. I think this is true because the way Jesus responds to them, he doesn't correct them to say, no, 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 we're not doing the restoration thing. Instead, he just redirects their understanding of the timeline and the process it's going to take to get there. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set. And then he goes on to say, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Not yet, he seems to say. The full restoration is coming, but first there's more work to be done. There's another chapter to this story. First, everyone The whole world needs to know about the restoration that is possible through Jesus Christ. 
And the apostles have a job to do. They will be Christ's witnesses, showing people what this kingdom of God is all about. And it's as though after he says that, his instructions are complete. And Jesus doesn't wait around to make sure that they got it and that they feel ready to handle this assignment they've been given. He's just out the door. He ascends into heaven. It's a pretty dramatic exit. He commissions them to carry on the work. He promises they'll have everything they need to do it. And then he leaves. It's up to you now. The apostles, which literally means sent ones, are left standing there staring at the sky, wondering what just happened, wondering if they're really ready for the assignment they've just been given, wondering now what? Now what do we do? But in that moment, two men in white robes appear beside them. Two men, perhaps the same ones who met the women at the tomb. They redirect them in their astonishment. They push them gently to get moving in the right direction. Why do you stand here looking at the sky? They say. You know what to do now, they are implying. This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Jesus will be back to finish the work, the angelic messengers promise. But now, go. Go be witnesses. You don't get to know the dates or the times, but you know what your job is. Go. My friends, This might be obvious to many of you, but just in case it isn't, I want to be really clear. This assignment to be Christ's witnesses is our assignment now. It wasn't just a message for those specially chosen apostles with a capital A that lived a long, long time ago. This isn't just a story about what happened way back when. It's the story of the beginning of the church. It's the story of the beginning of what it means to be a Christian. Luke starts his book by saying, all Jesus did and taught in the Gospels was a beginning. That by what he did and by what he taught, he led the way so that he could then pass this mission on to the apostles. And in a similar way, this book of Acts is the record of all the church began to do and to teach And that mission is passed on to us today. We are the sent ones, handed down this commission from Jesus to be his witnesses. We are still waiting for the day he will return to complete the restoration. But in the meantime, it's our job to show and to tell people about it, about the work that Jesus began in his resurrection and is coming back to complete one day. We are all his witnesses. We have all been commissioned for Christ's mission. Mission. Something we talk about in church a lot. But it isn't just something that some people in the church do. It's not just a project or a team or a budget line item. It is the calling each of us and all of us share together. Mission has always been the whole point of the church, the one and only purpose of Christ's followers. 
I think there has been a long season in the life of the church where it seemed like we thought we'd done such a good job of witnessing that many Christians, at least in the U.S. and in Europe, we assumed everyone around us already knew the gospel. We can be tempted to do that in West Michigan still today. And we thought about mission then as something far away, something we did for the sake of some unreached tribe in Africa or an island in the remote part of the Pacific Ocean. But I think we're starting to see, I hope we're starting to see, that the mission field starts in our own backyard with our families, with our neighbors, with our coworkers. And really, it always has. Christ sends his followers to be missionaries in Jerusalem, right where they live, in all Judea and Samaria, which is basically the state around Jerusalem, nearby places, and to the ends of the earth. All God's people, all Christians, our apostles, our sent ones, are called to be Christ's witnesses near and far in their words and in their actions. To be a Christian is to join Christ's mission. So today, as we read of Christ's ascension into heaven, as we hear about these 40 days he spent preparing his followers to be sent into mission, we are invited to take their question for ourselves. They stood there looking at the sky, and they wondered, Now what? Now what for us? What's next for us? How will we live into this calling to be Christ's witnesses in our own backyard, in our own community, in our world? What should we do? I want to invite you to look back with me at the text again. And see if we can learn something from these original sent ones and what they did next. Let's begin in verse 12. It reads, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath stay walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, at first read, it might seem like the apostles have blown their chance. Are they going to go into hiding now after Jesus' ascension, kind of like they did after his death? Jesus has just told them it's their job to go and tell others the good news of the gospel. And they go back to the house where they were staying with all their friends that already know. But in fact, if we read this whole story carefully, we see that the apostles are actually obeying Jesus' command. The command he started with in verse 4 when he said, Do not leave Jerusalem but wait for the gift my father promised. In a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
They have been sent by Jesus. But first they have to wait on the Spirit. They could have gotten excited about how now it was finally their turn to go out into mission. They could have gone gung-ho. But Jesus asked them to wait. To wait for the Spirit. And they wait for ten days. That's a long time to be waiting for something really important to happen. Imagine waiting for a job callback on an interview or um, test results on a medical um, test that you've had done. Ten days of waiting for the Spirit to come. I have often wondered why it took so long. And how did the disciples feel while they were waiting? Were they impatient? Were they restless? Were they afraid? I mean, it hasn't been that long since Jesus was taken away from them to be put on trial and be killed. They remember that feeling of being on their own. And that time, they scattered, they fled. It was an every-man-for-himself kind of mentality. But this time, they do something different. After Jesus leaves them and goes up into heaven, they gather together with other believers to wait and to pray. You see, I think that that waiting and that praying is the first step in their mission work. They gather in unity. They pray, cultivating hearts that are receptive to God's Spirit, anticipating the fulfillment of His promise, and trusting that He will be faithful to do it. We might think the proper response to Jesus sending His followers on mission would be to say, Great, let's go! But not so fast. They are almost ready, but not quite. Because they need the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit. So they gather with other believers and they pray. It might be tempting for us in the church today, thousands of years later, to say, well, this part of the story doesn't really apply to us. Pentecost has already happened. We believe that as Christians, our baptism symbolizes our baptism with the Spirit, that we're given that guidance, we're given those gifts, and that is all true. And yet, when we are sent on mission, we are also wise to pause and be attentive to the Spirit. We are wise to begin by gathering with other believers in unity and praying. Will Williman, a professor and former dean of the chapel at Duke Divinity School, once said, Our waiting implies that the things that need doing in the world are beyond our ability to accomplish solely by our own effort. That our programs and crusades are not enough. Some other empowerment is needed. Therefore, the church waits and prays. Our waiting implies that the things that need done in this world are beyond our own ability to do. Some other empowerment is needed. And so the church waits and prays. I think for our church today, this is an important reminder. We live in a culture that teaches us you can do anything if you put your mind to it. But the mission of God is not up to us to accomplish on our own. We rely on the power of the Spirit. We live in a world that prizes independence and self-sufficiency. 
But by faith, we are made part of a church with a variety of gifts that are all needed together for Christ's mission. So we gather and we pray for unity and direction as a body. We face huge challenges and rapid changes in our world. Challenges that need to be addressed with the good news of God's kingdom. But we cannot address any of these concerns sufficiently or resolve any of the problems we see solely by our own effort and our own ideas. We need the power of God. And so we begin our mission by gathering together and praying. We gather in worship. We gather in small groups. Maybe you're on a ministry team or you have friends with whom you pray intentionally for the mission of the church. If you don't have something like that, talk to me. In the mailboxes this morning, there are bookmarks from the adult discipleship team that suggest a way to connect with others if you want to intentionally gather to pray and to grow in your understanding of how you're called to be a witness. There are opportunities all around us for mission and opportunities all around us to join together and pray, to seek the leading of the Spirit. Another of those opportunities is listed in the bulletin, the 21 days of prayer and fasting that the RCA has invited all churches to participate in. The Reformed Church is inviting us to pray together and listen for how the Spirit will work through a council meeting that's coming up in a few weeks to address the concerns facing the church around human sexuality. So we're being asked to gather together, to wait on the Spirit, to pray to even use the same words in praying through the daily devotional that's available. This gathering together and praying can be as simple as looking at the prayer concerns in our bulletin or praying for others in our family and our friendship circles. Oh, how we wish we could act to make things right, to restore health and wholeness, to fix relationships that are broken, but we can't on our own. We don't know what to do. So we begin our mission by waiting and praying. Perhaps that seems like you're not doing enough. I know I've had that feeling before. We are called to be Christ's witnesses to the ends of the earth. There's got to be more we can do than just wait and pray. But this is where it begins. Gathering, praying, waiting on the Spirit to show us how to act to give us the power to speak when it's time to speak. Because on our own, we don't have the power to address all the challenges in our world. But together, and by the work of the Spirit, we will be Christ's witnesses in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and in our world. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, just this past week, as we celebrated the good news of your resurrection, we saw on full display your immense power to overcome even death. God, you give us a taste of that power when we witness Jesus alive. And then you turn right around and you call us to complete his work 
to follow him in mission, to take on the challenge of bringing that good news to the whole world. God, we are unequal to that task. We don't know what to do or what to say. So God, we pray that you would send your spirit on us. Before we act and as we act, that your spirit would guide us and strengthen us, that we can serve you, that the whole world would know the good news that Jesus Christ is risen and he is coming again to restore the world under the reign of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.